Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with journalist and author Bridie Jabor to talk about her book, Trivial Grievances. Thanks for joining us, Bridie. My pleasure. It's great to have you. I, I just finished the book last night and I loved it. Well, that's <laughs> a relief. Like, I do feel like um, you got a direct line into my brain a little bit. <laughs> oh, really? That's yeah. what I was going for. Well, that's the hard thing when you're writing something so it's pretty personal in some ways. Like there's a bit of memoir in there, although obviously I interview people as well. And then you get to the end and hand it in and just think, is that incredibly self-indulgent? And I've just written like 70,000 words just about how I feel. And why would anyone care about that? So what a relief to hear that you got something out of it. It's the honesty, right? You are so honest about it that it feels like it cuts through to that part that's just true. That's, and that's what I think really good memoir does or um, whatever this book is. So tell us a bit about the book so that people will understand. It's a funny little hybrid, isn't it? There is memoir in it. And I think that um, memoir at any age can be so interesting. So I wasn't really bashful about writing that. But it, it is in essay form. There's also a bit of journalism in there as well. So it's a, it's a mix of those three things basically and the center of it it's been it's about millennial malays and millennials basically getting to their 30s and realizing that life isn't working out the way that they thought but I think that it does as I worked on the book that's how it was originally pitched and that's how I started writing it but I think within the first couple of essays I got to a point thinking and knowing and realizing this isn't just about millennial malays and this isn't just something that happens to people in their early 30s, although it is very common for that age. But, you know, it's quite universal. It's, it's about existential crisis, basically, and looking around your life and thinking, is this it? Is this what I'm happy with? And how to find joy in that ordinary life as well. And come to terms with not being a famous rock star. That is part of it too. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, this came off the back of a viral article you wrote. Can you tell us about how, how you progressed from that article to the book? That article was such a, a funny thing. I'm the opinion editor at The Guardian and I also do a bit of writing. And I was 31 and I'd had this dinner with some mates and realised that everyone suddenly seemed quite miserable. And I was definitely feeling it a bit myself as well you know have I made the right decisions this is my job it's going to be hard to change it uh, this is where I live it's getting harder to change cities you know your your roots are being put down these are my kids definitely can't change them well I only had one at the time and um you know I was looking around saying so this is the shape of my life is this it is this am I happy with this and have I made the right decisions and I realized that a lot of other people were asking the same questions that I, it was not unique to me and it was it was not unique to women, certainly. It was men, women, uh, people of different cultural backgrounds, people, you know, my mates who lived overseas, as well as my mates who lived in Australia, I could see a lot of people going through this same kind of melancholy almost. And because it was December, there's not that much news around. <laughs> so I, that's a time when I traditionally run like lighter stuff and uh and more think pieces and just stuff about life that's what people want to read so i wrote it ran it past another editor because i can't just commission myself and uh and they okayed it and said yeah it's a great idea um we should publish this and so i actually published it on 
New Year's Eve, which is a very quiet time and like a week between Christmas and New Year's where you're, you're just putting up a couple of things a day. So I wasn't expecting it to go that big. And uh, it, I also published it just as the bushfires were happening in Australia. So it was actually a very, very intense news time in Australia. So I didn't, I just thought, you know, there's the nice life thing for this morning on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, whatever, move on to my other more important pieces about climate change and bushfires and we're watching everything burn down in Australia. The piece went insane. It was 600,000 clicks and it went around the world. I still get emails about that piece. I got Twitter DMs about it. People found me on Instagram. People emailed me. Loads and loads of people in their 30s emailed me, but I also had a lot of um, older people emailing me saying this is exactly how my child feels and you know I have a 30 year old and they're going through this or there was one woman who said I have three kids in their late 20s and early 30s you've completely nailed how they're feeling and I actually feel really sorry for them because I think that it's harder for them than it was for me and it's this isn't a usual reaction to an opinion piece like I knew there was something there and so I um started thinking about a about a book and yeah, and developed a pitch and it wasn't a very long pitch, you know, and uh, sent it around and got picked up very quickly. And then I thought, you know, it's 2020, oh, it's February, the bushfires are over. I'm glad that really intense time of my life is over. <laughs> time to take the rest of this year, quiet year to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how a lot of us felt <laughs> at the beginning of that year. Yeah. And you know, the, the sky cleared in February and we all, uh, had that sigh of relief. Things are only going to get better from here. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. So it really was just very, um, you concentrated it into a book pitch and, and, and sent it around. That's, that's cool. Um, so I guess it's, it's a very varied series of essays in a lot of ways, even though it's, it's, it's built around this central concept. Is there any, sort of central thing you want people to take away from it um, when they're finished? The central thing I would like them to take away is that they are not alone and they are not abnormal for going through times in their life where they may not be as happy as they thought they would and that it's very natural and appropriate thing to wonder if you've made the right decisions and if this is the life that you want. And I also want them to take away how much joy there is in an ordinary life mm -hmm. and how lucky we all really are to be here in general. And I hope that this book can help them see that as well. Mm. I, I definitely think you've communicated that. I, I kept re repeating lines of it to my partner and, and asking her to validate my own feelings about, about <laughs> it <that was> similar. <laughs> But one of the early, early um, quotes that I pulled out was that sense of, um, what do you say? I've been experiencing a certain kind of tedium for a little while. I thought my dissatisfaction was perhaps a symptom of my brattiness. There had been no parties in my honour lately, no announcements to make with a satisfied air of self-deprecation, some personal news. Intellectually, I knew I was not special, but in my heart, I loved, I still loved the applause. <laughs> that That's such a great, I think it really captures something that a lot of people who are around, I'm older than you, uh, but around about our age feel as they get to that point where they've like done the things, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, and we do feel special. And I think I'm glad that you like that line because I would still 
cringe a little bit at it in edits and that is a line that I was proud oh, of but was that I also just thought god I'm really like I'm really being honest here aren't I because we're not <laughs> meant to admit to feeling so special but I think that we all do deep down most of us feel special and we keep feeling special into our 30s and 40s and probably 50s you know like we are the protagonist of our own lives so everything that happens is happening to us as long as you obviously don't let that veer into narcissism but uh yeah I'm glad that you relate it to the line and I think that it's a it's good to admit it and I'm glad that other people can see themselves in that as well and it's not just me thinking that I'm the center of the universe <laughs> <laughs> well it just goes to show that people are I think that there is a status obsession um that there is a way to shake off but it's it, if you let it set in, I think, I think around your early thirties is probably when it starts to set in. And if you don't shake it off, then you can get really obsessed with it, I think. Yeah. And also the thing about that as well is that if you do get the status and you know, I've had it a little bit, a few times, uh, you get there and realize it doesn't actually make your life better. And it doesn't actually make you happier when you have these big external achievements you think they're going to make you feel differently about yourself, but they don't because they're not actually the things that matter. And I think that that's another dawning realization to have in an existential crisis as well. Mm, absolutely. Um, you have had quite a few, I guess, life changing moments um, in uh, that, that have sort of uh, solidified your feeling like you're alive, I guess. <laughs> Um, as, as, you know, in the book, you talk about your son having this seizure, which just sounded utterly terrifying. Um, thankfully, I haven't been in that situation with my kids, but I very viscerally felt it. Um, and and I, I feel like it's a, it, it is a real wake-up call to take things a bit different, differently and seriously, but only for a little while, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. So that is still the worst moment of my life that seizure and I do feel fundamentally changed so when he had that seizure I, I write about it in the book but I honestly thought that he was dying that I was watching my child die and he was about 14 months 14 or 16 months old then and he, he was turning blue in front of me we didn't know why he was having a seizure it ended up being completely fine in the ambulance on the way to the hospital like he triple o talked me through it the seizure stopped it was just because of a spike in his fever and the ambos told me on the ride to the hospital that this is it's a pretty normal thing but that when they get called out to it they have to sometimes treat the parents and sedate the parents before they actually treat the kid because of how scary it is to watch and uh, I do think that moment it did fundamentally change me in a way it made me realize something that I've never been able to shake since and that is that like my son is mortal I, I honestly had not properly reckoned with that before. And, um, and, I th and it changed me in the long term, but also you get this huge high afterwards as well, like this euphoria where nothing can bother you and you're just so happy to be alive and the sky is so blue and the traffic is slow, but who cares? It's traffic, we're here, we're alive. And I do try to take that um, into my life you know because it wears off after a couple of weeks and I do try to remember those feelings and, and hang on to it a little bit and then I had another one earlier this year when I was in quite a serious car accident with both of my kids where we got hit by a truck and the car rolled three times on the highway and I was completely conscious for the whole thing and knew what was happening at the time it was 
utterly terrifying. And it was the car accident was so bad that they called out a helicopter because they thought for sure there had to be fatalities. And there wasn't, we all walked away. But I got told a lot by the paramedics and the nurses and doctors how lucky we were. And I got told explicitly by a couple of doctors that all of us, or at least one of us, uh, should or could be dead. Honestly, the one of us thing is more terrifying to me when you start thinking about that, which one. Uh, and so that, you know, I was, I was very changed after that as well. And that was only a few months ago. So I feel like I keep, this, probably, this happens probably to every parent though. You have these moments of complete and sheer terror every few years. If you're lucky, it's only every few years where the, your world gets turned upside down for a little bit and then life goes on and you have to try and hang on to the small lessons that you learn out of that. And after the car accident, I did actually have the funny thought. I was uh, in baby ICU, which is not a fun place to be. Obviously my baby was fine, but he was in for observation and I was lying down. Um, my shoulder was broken. I didn't know it was broken though. It took a while to get diagnosed because it was such a unique break lying next to him, my sleeping child in baby ICU. And I was thinking, you know, my book's right. <laughs> I was writing my book. <laughs> I, I truly did think that I'm like, it's really wanky, but I was like, you know, my book is about what is important in life. And I think I did nail in the book by the end, what is important in life. And it was very yeah, much reaffirmed by my near death experience. <laughs> Yeah. I think uh, when, I, when I first met you a couple of months ago, I was complaining about my uh, having snapped a tendon in my little finger and I was like, oh, it's really hard. And then and I went to shake your hand to say hello and you were like, oh, you can't because I just was in a rollover. <laughs> yeah, I just almost died. But even at that point, you know, my shoulder was sore. It still hadn't been diagnosed as broken. So oh, right. does that one up a broken finger, broken shoulder versus broken finger? Hmm. <laughs> it was a definite one up but yeah I definitely empathize with that feeling though even without having had an obviously that experience but also just that feeling of thing like that sense of I was I think I was keenly aware of my children's mortality from the moment they were born I was that parent who would like go into my son's you know crib and poke him to make him wake up so that I could hear him breathing because sometimes it's very hard to tell <laughs> Ah, um, oh, yes, we've all, yeah, we've all been there. Right when yeah. they sleep in for the first time or through for the first time and you like jump out of bed frantic, are they still breathing? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. And the uh, I think when you come from a big family, uh, which I do and uh, you do, I, I gather from the book, uh, that there's no sympathy from, <laughs> from your parents about that type of thing because they're just like, ah, they're fine. Oh yeah. When, and my mother is also, you come from a big family. So there's little sympathy. And on top of that, my mother is a nurse. Now any child of a nurse knows there is no sympathy for any illness. You are never taken to hospital unless they can see bone or you're not breathing. And when, when we went to hospital with a seizure, my mum was actually terrified when I rang her to tell her about it. But then the next day when I was still upset, mum goes to me, that's not the last time you'll be at the hospital with your kid. And I was like, Could you be a bit more comfortable? She was right. Like, it's true. But yeah, the, you don't, you don't get reservoirs and sympathy when they've got so many other kids to think of as well. Absolutely. Um, uh, which brings me to uh, one of the parts of the book that I really loved and I haven't ever read anywhere else expressed in the way that you did um, about siblings. Um, you talk about, well, I'll let you talk about it because it's more interesting for me. <laughs> the sibling love. Oh, I'm so, um, 
you know, a few people have read this book and pointed out a few different essays to me and none of them have spoken about that one. And it's one of my favorite ones. So I'm glad that you could connect with it. And maybe it's people from big families who do. So the central premise of it, it's something that I've actually been thinking about for a couple of years is does parenting matter when you have siblings? And, you know, we are told over and over again, especially in modern parenting life, how influential we are on our kids and, you know, what to do to make your kids empathetic and what to do to make your kids this way or that way and how to teach them how to be humans, basically, which, you know, obviously you do have to do as a parent. But, you know, growing up, my parents, uh, who are great parents, are very, very much background characters in my life and in my memories. Like everything was about me, my brother and my sisters. They, like my parents fade into the background. We were very unsupervised too, because this is growing up in the country in the, in the 90s. But, you know, I think that my... My relationships with my siblings have shaped me so much and shaped my character in some, some in really, really obvious ways. I'm such a typical oldest child. You know, uh, look at me releasing my second book after having my second kid and, and having this great job at the Guardian. You know, I've always been someone who's quite organised, uh, ambitious. You know, I can, get, I can get stuff done. And that's typical oldest child stuff. But even small things like my sense of humour, I think, comes from my siblings and Certainly the way that I respond to conflict I, comes from everything I learned in the numerous, numerous conflicts I had with my siblings. <laughs> Although I don't physically fight anyone the way that I physically fought my siblings. Uh, and when I started researching it, so I had this as a hunch and this is how I feel. And, you know, I think there's a good essay in that. But when I started researching it, the studies in it, I thought were really, really interesting. It's a very, very understudied area. But the research that is there completely backed up my feelings, which is that your siblings are a huge influence on your life and can sometimes be, well, it's very under-researched, but I think can sometimes be more influential than your parents. And the studies bear that out in the few studies that there are. Yeah, I found that really fascinating. Uh, I've got three younger brothers, so definitely understand the older older sibling feeling <laughs> that, that get, comes from just being bossing people around all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just used to, I have no problems bossing every, anyone around. Very comfortable authority with people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I totally, I, that really rang true for me it's not that my obviously my parents are massively important to my life and, and the way they they treated me growing up but yeah I think it's underestimated and I've, I hadn't really thought about it in that way before but so much of your sort of I guess you'd say building blocks in some ways come from parents in certain ways like the decisions they make very fundamental decisions that they make about where you're going to live and stuff but this sort of day-to-day -day personality the way I interact with other human beings and, you know, I, I definitely think that my, my siblings have had more of an influence on me in that. Yeah. My parents. And your sense of self and who you are in the world and, and how you treat other, way, other people. Like some of the studies bore this out and I also agree. Like, it makes you a very empathetic person. I think particularly when you're from a big family as well, because as you would know, you know, I'm the oldest of four and we're all born within six years. So we're quite close in age. Could not be more different to each other personality wise and and when you're doing that like living side by side so physically close to each other all of the time and with people who are so fundamentally different to you in some ways it's like it's really freaking good for you and I think it's um and very good for your sense of self and very good for how you treat people as you get older and we're still very very close I'm obviously in my 30s now we're still very close but I think even if you're not 
close to your siblings when you're an adult, it still doesn't take away all the growing up you did side by side. And a really interesting point as well is your siblings is probably the longest relationship you're ever going to have in your life. You know, your parents are going to die, unfortunately. <laughs> Mine won't, yours will. Uh, <laughs> but your parents are going to die. Uh, you know, your partner you meet, usually you've already lived for like a couple, at least a couple of decades before you've met them. But your siblings in general are going to see you through from very close to the beginning to very close to the end. And that's another, I think, very fascinating thing to grapple with as well. Mm, you can't hide yourself from them. No way. <laughs> no. And I, I also think they, they provide a sort of safe space as a child to make really bad mistakes, which <laughs> exactly you know, I, I reflect often upon the things that I did, especially as the eldest, to my siblings that I deeply regret and have and feel and have feelings about, you know, and it informs the way I behave as an adult. And I've talked to them about it and sometimes apologised to them about things that I've remembered. And in almost every case, they don't remember the things that I remember. They remember different things that I did to them. <laughs> exactly. I know my, like, my, my younger sister will say stuff that I did to her, allegedly. I've got no recollection <laughs> of it at all. And then, yeah. And also, isn't that, that's another interesting thing that you learn by having siblings. The way that we recollect remember certain events, the exact same event, and we can remember it in such different ways. That is such a valuable thing to have, to realise quite early in your life that people are going to see things differently to you and remember things differently to you. But yeah, you're right. The space, like all the most awful things I've ever done in my life has definitely been to my siblings. And I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So make sure you have lots of kids so that they can treat each other terribly. Yeah. <laughs> and not blame you, but also you don't blame your parents, you blame your siblings. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, uh, another thing in the book that I really loved the way you covered as a, this is a complete pivot is your sort of I, common sense response to the moral panic over the internet and phones and social media. Um, I have, I'm a big phone user. I, I, I love my social media, but uh, you know, as someone in, in I'm in my late thirties, um, I, I do get this pushback from everyone around me all the time about how, it's just, you know, it's really unhealthy and like, as, as if there's something really fundamentally wrong with me. For yeah, I'm so, I'm so sick of all the articles and all the panic about the internet making us worse people and how bad it is for society. I just don't buy into it. I think we should be careful of it. We should be very thoughtful about it and it's good to have discussions about it. But almost all the ways that I see it covered is negatively and there's loads of positives to the internet and phones and social media and yeah I think it goes under recognized and I've got and that essay was in response to I was sick of reading about the moral panic I was sick of another thing to feel guilty about my screen time and so in response yeah I wrote that essay I like being addicted to my phone and I do <laughs> <laughs> yeah that definitely made sense to me um I I think there's just so much in this book that people can take away from um, is there anything that we, we haven't covered that you, you really would like to talk about? Is there a question I haven't asked you? No, you talked about my favourite things. The, the, sibling, so the sibling, yeah, you're, you're a great interviewer. It's probably because you're the oldest child. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a prof professional interviewer, <laughs> but I do love doing this. This is my favourite part of my job. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. It was great to talk to you. And I really want people to go out and buy the book, regardless of whether you're a millennial or not. 
I think you're going to get a lot out of it. It's just a fascinating sort of glimpse into all the many sort of modern day concerns that you definitely thought about, but not as much as Bridie has. <laughs> no, so people should definitely buy it because it's been released in lockdown and I'm pretty devastated about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you can buy Trivial Grievances from booktopia.com.au. Thanks for joining us, Bridie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au